really excited to wrap up the book of Galatians. This is the final sermon on that. I don't know, some of you might be ready for it. You can only take talking about circumcision for so long, right? So, I mean, from here on out, the jokes, the snip-snip jokes are just going to get inappropriate. So it's time to wrap up the book of Galatians. But I really hope it has been a rich time for you. It surely has for me. It's a beautiful celebration of the pure gospel. So Paul's going to close down his letter. And it is interesting. You might not uh, spot it before because you got to kind of compare it to his other epistles to get a particular feel for as he is closing down this letter. Much like the introduction to the letter of Galatians is unique to all of his other letters, so is kind of the conclusion of the letter. Many of his other letters, they end kind of warm and fuzzy. They get into some kind of little details. So I don't know if you've read any other epistle, you know, unpack some theology, but it ends with like, hey, give everybody some holy smooches. Like, hope I see you by Christmas, but I don't know, rental cars are so pricey, we'll see, right? And he gets into, they didn't have cars back then. I'm trying to keep it relevant and fresh, you know? And Paul didn't talk like a teenage girl either. But, but that is kind of the, the vibe. The other one's like, bye, you know? I mean, they're kind of nice and warm and fuzzy. So we're going to dive into this passage, and you tell me if you can pick up on the tone, if it has a nice, warm, fuzzy feel, and it'll jump out at you, but it just tells you where Paul's at, because when you're dealing with the gospel, there's no messing around. The end of this book, you think he could wrap up with some nice things, hey, tell them I said hello, none of that. Paul ends this book with, listen, you cannot miss this. This is of the utmost importance. It's not pastoral hyperbole to say eternity hangs in the balance. Please don't miss it. And he kind of closes the book that way. So please follow along as I read. We're going to be in Galatians 6. We'll pick it up in verse 11. Follow along as I read. See with what large letters... I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Like he closes that down the book, he gets like a grumpy old man. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. Get off my lawn. I bear the, 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 on my body the marks of Jesus. He gets Bernie Mac at the end. Man, my body tired. My body weary. Like, please, you got to get this. Do not miss this. Did you catch the tone at the end of this letter? 
Some of it you may have kind of missed it. To unpack some of kind of the, the context of what's going on here, I kind of boldened it because this is how it would have came across to the Galatians. Listen to what he said. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Put caps lock on there on purpose. Because if you were reading this whole letter, this section at the end would have been bigger. It would have been in bold. And again, to understand some of the context, what was going on, is very common practice at the time. So most likely what was happening is Paul was kind of orally dictating the letter, and there would have been trained scribes actually copying it down. I mean, they were dealing with inflation just like us. Parchment paper was pricey. So they would have a trained scribe that could write very clearly and legibly, but write small. But right here in verse 11 through the end, Paul says, give me a pen. I bought a tire. Come on. Like, Paul, hey, that's expensive. He's like, I don't care. Listen, you have to get this. See, Paul lacked the caps lock function. This is the equivalent of like command B, command U, command I. Like he wants to stress this part. Listen, you can't miss it. Please don't miss this. And obviously he's saying his own hand. Like, there's a lot of people that'll tell you opinions of how to be saved. Paul is saying, take it from me, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then also, he's clearly showing the significance. I beg of you, don't miss it. So kind of that's where he's at. And then kind of the end of this section, he basically kind of summarizes the journey that they've been, that, that they've been on. He kind of encapsulates the whole letter because again, I don't want you to miss this, so let me, let me just tell it to you one more time. And kind of finishes up this journey. So as he summarizes that way, I think it would help us to kind of summarize a little bit of the journey that we've been on through Galatians. Right? So Paul is a missionary. He travels around telling people about Jesus. So Paul travels around, gets to the region of Galatia, starts telling people the pure gospel. Listen, God loves you. And he knows that you're separated from him by your sin, but he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you so that you could be forgiven and have a relationship with him. So Paul is spreading the pure gospel and gets to Galatians and tells people God loves you and can redeem you. And the Galatians are like, are you for cereal? That's awesome. Like, I'm in, and people are getting baptized, coming to Christ. Like, we should start a church. And Paul's like, I got you. Let's do it. So all these people, receiving the gospel, plants these churches, and then Paul continues to travel around telling other people about the pure gospel of God's love and grace that is available to them. But most of Paul's life, you got to understand this in the New Testament. If you get in the book of Acts, kind of just after Jesus, those next 30 years, a big part of it is Paul planting churches. But a big part of his journey is after he preached the pure gospel, most of Paul's ministry, Paul was chased around by another group where Paul would go. You'd see these guys, we can call them Judaizers, kind of these agitators coming and distorting the gospel behind them. As Paul was a missionary, as Martin Luther said, and he called these guys, he sends the devil's missionaries after Paul wherever he goes. And he distorts the gospel. 
And these guys come and say, as Paul tells them, how you can experience God's love today and you can't earn it. These guys come after him and say, yeah, believe in God, Jesus, he's great. Yeah, God's love, I get that. But do you really think God can love you? Man, you're going to need to do a little bit to earn that. And so that's what these guys teach. One of the biggest things I got out of this study of Galatians Paul is shocked what's happened. These men are deceived. That is the core of who the devil is, who Satan is. He's a deceiver. He's a counterfeiter. And that just really clicked in my mind studying this. Because nobody just walks away from God, essentially. These men were deceived into it. So what does a counterfeiter do? They don't try to pass off counterfeit bills. They try to convince you that this counterfeit bill is the real thing. You see that difference? See, Satan never comes and tells you, hey, do you want to believe a lie? And you're like, that sounds great. Satan doesn't come and try to get you to believe a lie. Satan comes and tries to get you to believe that a lie is the truth. That is what deception is. So nobody, the church didn't just decide to walk away from God. Like, it's not like Jerry and the Galatian church decided, hey, I'm walking away from God. Who's coming with me? Dorothy Boyd, all right, who else? Who's coming with me? Like, nobody decides to just walk away from God. They get deceived. See, again, we have that phrase, right? The devil's in the detail. You've got to understand kind of how Satan works. See, you are not saved by what you do. You're saved by Christ and what he has done on the cross. But from that, how you live your life is significant. See, Satan knows he doesn't have to get you to believe something to be utterly false. He just has to distort the truth a little bit. So when it's, you're not saved by what you do, but what you do is significant, and he just takes a quarter turn to what you do is not just significant, it's salvific. I know that's a fancy word maybe for some of you, but the big difference between important and necessary salvation are the difference between the gospel and no gospel at all. And he reminds them of this and summarizes. So yes, Satan comes with his great deception and feeds you the lie that God can never really love you you better start changing to earn his love. You know the great tool that Satan uses to promote his great deception? Religion. Oh, come on, God can't really love you. Here, let me just show you religion. Let me show all the things you can do to try to earn God's love. That's the great lie. And Paul is fighting for the pure gospel. I've heard it said this way, simply, the word, the difference between the gospel and the false gospel is do and done. If your hope in finding peace and being reconciled to God is based off of your performance and all the things that you do, you are in religion and you are in a false gospel, which is no gospel at all. And what Paul preached is Christ and him crucified. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. 
I pray that you can see that difference. Religion is what you do. The gospel is what Jesus has done. You guys can be the false gospel people, okay? Say do with me. Religion is about what you do. They got to be the false gospel. <laughs> the true gospel is about what Jesus has done. You have to understand the difference between do and done. And so Paul is fighting for their hearts. Stop putting any hope in your religion. Stop thinking there's things that you can do to earn God's love. That is empty and it's false. So kind of in this last section, he warns them one last time of the emptiness of religion and is calling them to a relationship. Not religion, but a relationship based off of the gospel of Christ. And part of what he does here in this last section, again, he continues to throw shade at these agitators that are pushing religion. Because here's the deal. It's easy. I mean, how many of us are going to be tempted to just follow Satan tomorrow? Probably not. How many of us tomorrow are tempted to be deceived by Satan? Almost all of us. So we need to understand part of what he's doing is, look, you've got to recognize religion so you ultimately can reject it. And he talks about some of the warning signs that these agitators, these pushers of religion bring. Because I want you to be able to recognize religion when you see it, so you can ultimately reject it. So let's look at a couple of things. One, kind of a fort always shows up when you're dealing with religion is hypocrisy. Because what does he warn them in this last passage? Look, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. So here are these guys saying, you got to keep the law to be right with God. And he's saying, these guys don't even keep it themselves. Nobody can keep the law. And if that's what you're on, okay, here's, I got a basis of what I do. Everybody falls short. I was watching a, a special on Apple TV called The Greatness Code. I was watching, and it was about some of the greatest athletes of all time in the greatest moments they've ever had. And it was about Tom Brady. And he was telling a game, and look, while he's with the Patriots, I wouldn't admit it, but we all know he's the GOAT. Like, there's no way around it. He's the greatest quarterback of all time. And now that, you know, he's down in Tampa Bay, I can handle saying that. But this was a game where he played against the Bills. And he had this perfect game to hear him say, and everybody beats on the Bills. It's the Bills, you know, come on. But he goes on to talk about every read he made was perfect. Every throw was perfect. This is the greatest quarterback of all time, playing the greatest game he's ever played of all time. He said he couldn't miss. You know what? Tom Brady's a hypocrite. That felt good to say, baby. Because he didn't make every perfect throw. I looked it up. He was 31 for 39. I mean, he had five TDs. It was a good game. Don't get me wrong. The greatest quarterback playing the greatest game of all time still falls short. He still missed eight times. Nobody is perfect. And if you want to say, okay, I got to be a good person, and this always cracks me up. Because, you know, people get there, okay, what is your hope in? And if you're believing religion, you say, oh, I tried to be a good person, or I tried, and you list the things that you do, 
But anybody that talks about it for more than a minute acknowledges, I mean, almost without fail, it comes out, well, you know, I'm not perfect. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? You know the massive problem with that? Here's one of the, the other great deceptions that Satan puts out there that somehow God is just kind of a sweep it under the rug kind of judge that you're going to get there and oh, okay, well, nobody's perfect, you know. But listen to what was said in Galatians. For I, Paul, tell you, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you accept religion, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, listen, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So I don't care what cultural relevance that you want to push it to. This is God's word saying, okay, you want to go the religion route? You want to think that you're going to be justified by what you do? Then you better do all of it. But Satan somehow spread that lie that you're going to get there and God's going to go, okay, were you perfect and righteous? And you're going, oh, I'm probably not perfect, God, but, uh, you know, we really think that he's going to go, I mean, did you at least want to be a good person? Yeah, I tried. Well, get in here, you big lug. Let me just... Listen, if you want to base it off, you're a good guy, and let's be honest, we're not a bunch of Tom Brady's in here. So, yeah, even the best fall short, and let's not pretend that we're right up there. Every one of us is far worse than we'll ever admit. Let me put it this way. Every one of us is far worse than you even know. And if you put your hope in religion and what you do in your performance, I promise you that doesn't end well. Maybe you were raised where you just saw, and ultimately that's where it ends up in hypocrisy. All the things that you say you should be about, you don't always do. Maybe you were raised in a church like that, that it was just rampant hypocrisy. And maybe it wasn't the gospel that you were getting, and maybe it was religion. So another kind of warning sign of religion, I think, is pride and pity. And by that particular, I mean self-pity, but I'm trying to keep my P alliteration game strong, all right? Pride and pity, what does he say about these pushers of religion? They desire to have you circumcised. Why? That they may boast in your flesh. They wanted to be prideful to say, look how many people that I can circumcise. Look how many converts I can have. And they pushed religion so that they can be prideful and feel good about themselves and justify themselves by their works of the flesh. Listen, if you're in a system of religion, which is based off of your performance, there is only two ways that ends. Pride or pity. Why? In religion, it's based off of your performance. Every one of us now can compare ourselves to everybody else because it's our performance and nobody's the same. This ain't soccer. There ain't no ties. This is America, right? Never a tie. I can't understand a tie. Why would they do that? But every person you come across, I either decide my performance is better than them. I know God's word more than them. I memorize the books of the Bible. I don't sin as much as them. 
Or you look around and you feel like a scumbag. Wow. I'm not as good. Because we're talking about our performance. That's religion. I'm not as good as them. You beat yourself up. And it's self-pity. Because somehow you've judged that your performance is worse than them. If you're in religion, religion is about your performance. This is the only end of that road. Maybe you've experienced that. I think there's even other elements that you see in the text, right? Like, I mean, there's religion is high pressure. It said, these men try to force you to follow them. Maybe you were raised in a church where this is high pressure situation. Again, you know what isn't on there? What religion, what your performance will never get you is peace. You will never be at peace and rest because it's based off of your performance, which wanes, goes up and down, so you'll never be at peace. Religion compared to a relationship based off the gospel of grace is like the difference between commission and like salaried, like tenured salaried, right? One, your livelihood is secure. Now, when you're in a commission system, that's like religion, right? My livelihood isn't secure. So I need to work for my livelihood. You can walk into a store and instantly know, like, okay, that's commission, right? Like, as soon as you walk in, like, can I help you? Can I help you? Hey, you look good today, man. Huh, I love that sweat. Like, okay, you're clearly making commission, right? That's religion. You are never secure. You always need to work harder to perform more. And you are never certain because your performance ebbs and flows. You're never at peace because you never know it's about me. Am I good enough? Here's the thing that breaks my heart. Many of us raised, raised in church or served a big bowl of religion and said, nah, I don't want any of that. I remember sitting in church. I was raised Catholic, and we were like, you know, my siblings were somewhere around eight or nine. I'm not trying to bash Catholicism, but for a nine-year-old, it's not the most exciting 45 minutes of your life, right? <laughs> so we weren't, you know, behaving appropriately. You know, so we're just acting a fool, and we're being loud, and then we offer each other a sign of peace. I'll never forget it. My brother turns around to shake the man's hand behind him. He says, you don't deserve to shake my hand. I don't want any of that. Here's the heartbreaking thing. You rightfully rejected religion, but you tied it to Jesus. You thought it was the same thing. And when you walked away from religion, you walked away from Jesus. And I pray you know those are not the same thing. Jesus and religion are not the same thing. So if you were just served that rancid bowl of religion, reject it. That's fine, but don't reject him. They're not the same thing. And I pray that the Spirit will show you the difference between religion and performing, trying to earn God's love, where there's no peace in embracing, not trying to achieve it, but receiving God's love for you. I love the way Paul says it in Colossians, the difference between religion 
and a relationship of grace. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's not just a Galatian problem. It's everywhere. The great lie that Satan told you is you can earn God's love if you do enough. And what are they pushing? Religion. Oh, you got to keep the right festivals, eat the right food, and drink. What does Paul say? Religion is. It's a shadow. It's the dangerous thing about a shadow is it resembles it, right? It's the silhouette of Christ. It's close to and connected to Christ. Unless you're Peter Pan. He had that weird, like, you know, shadow separating from thing. But by and large, here's the danger of the shadow. It resembles it. It's close to it, but it's a knockoff. What does he say? It's not the substance. It's not the real thing. Religion isn't the real thing. I've been meditating on this. This is what I've been praying for myself and praying for you all this week. And I know some people are ready for it. That you would recognize the shadow and emptiness of religion and that you would experience the real thing. That's my hope for you today. How do you experience the real thing and reject religion? Listen to what he says. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. The only thing that matters is has God come into your life? Has he redeemed you? Has he forgiven you? Has he showered his love on you? That's it. That's all that matters. And how do you get there? The clear and undeniable centrality of the cross. I don't boast in anything. Listen, Paul could boast. If it was about performance, he's writing the Bible. He's got an impressive resume. He says, none of that matters. One thing matters, the cross of Christ. If you want to have a relationship, you've got to understand the centrality of the cross. Let me tell you a story of a guy who I think really understood this. This is Francis. So Francis, he was a Polish sergeant that ended up in Auschwitz. Obviously the most famous of concentration camps, the most brutal of concentration camps. See, the story about him goes, in July of 1941, in Auschwitz, a prisoner escapes. We don't know who that guy is. So now, Carl Fritz, he's the deputy commander of Auschwitz at the time, says, okay, I can't allow this to happen. I've got to deter people from trying to escape. Now, I can't punish the guy who escaped. So what he decides, I'm going to randomly pick 10 men, and I'm going to starve them to death. I'm going to put 10 men in a box, and they will get zero food or water until they all starve to death. And he starts picking. And he gets to Francis. He says, you. Francis, I'm sure like all of them, just cries out. 
my kids, my wife. He doesn't cry out for himself. Just the fact that he's going to leave his kids and his wife to be without a father and a husband. Somewhere in the line, this guy, Maximilian Colby, steps to the front. You know you're a boss with Maximilian Colby. Listen to that name. He steps to the front. says, if it's okay with you, can I just take his place? Like, how about you take me instead of him? And almost just as miraculously, the deputy agrees. And he takes his place. And that man, a Christian missionary, starves to death, and after two weeks he didn't even die. They inject him with acid. That, my friends, is a gospel exchange. Francis knows the difference between grace and performance. He lived to be 95. 50 years after that. This man knows he's not alive because he was a good prisoner that he worked hard, that he tried to be faithful. This man is alive for another 50 years because a wonderful, glorious act of grace. There's no pride in that. He doesn't walk away feeling like, oh, I know how I got here. Look at me. He's alive for one reason. Somebody else sacrificed himself. That, my friends, is a picture of the gospel. You were not accepted before him because you worked hard. God was watching you send your life to hell and you were going to be condemned and Jesus came from the back of the line and said, Father, can you take me instead? How about I die so that they live? That is the gospel. There's one reason he's alive. Because somebody else sacrificed himself. How dare we be anything but utterly humble people? Listen to this quote about Francis at the end. He says, so as long as he has breath in his lungs, he would consider it his duty to tell people about the heroic act of love by Maximilian Colby. He found purpose in his life to tell people about this great act if you're trying to find peace in purpose, it is not found in religion and trying to earn it. It's understanding the centrality of the cross and what Jesus did so that he can fully pour his love out onto you. At the end of the letter, if you caught it, he offers that purpose in peace, but it is conditional. He says, and for all who follow this rule, peace and mercy be upon him. You can't earn it, but you have to receive it. We're going to close and sing a song, and I want you to hear that invitation of peace and purpose in a relationship with God, not because you deserve it, but because of Jesus. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, please help us to marvel at the glory of the cross and the good news of the gospel. 
Would we reject religion and pride and fear and experience your peace? Not because we deserve it, but because of your wonderful act of grace and love. God, help us to stop trying to earn it, but to receive your love. In Jesus' name, amen.